I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. Ben Collins was one of the leading stars on one of the biggest TV shows ever, but at the height of his fame... No one knew who he was. Ben was undercover on Top Gear as the original White Stig. And on this episode, you're going to get all the behind-the-scenes stories on how he kept it a secret, not only from his closest friends, but even his family. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, joining me now is a former international man of mystery, a world-class race car and stunt driver, but he's probably best known for his role on Top Gear as the Stig. Ben Collins, thank you very much for coming on. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Where are you at the moment? What are you doing? Yeah, well, I'm back in the UK. So I've been working in America a lot, and um, but uh, came back around Christmas time for, to enjoy lockdown in a wet country. And so here we all are, making the, making the most of it. Yeah, and then I hopefully be back to the races again in a few months' time. Well, we'll get to um, your race car driving later on in the interview. Um, and your stunt driving as well. But let's just launch straight into it, as probably expected from you. Um, for those people that have no idea about Top Gear and, um, and and haven't seen it and have lived under a rock, who is the Stig? What is the Stig? Can you explain to someone the whole concept behind it? Yeah, I guess for a Martian looking down, it would, um, well, from a Martian's perspective, it would look familiar because it, it, the Stig looks a bit like an astronaut or something <laughs> out of Star Wars. I'd seen Top Gear on TV and I was aware that there was a Stig in a black suit that preceded my time. It looked like a lot of fun. And I basically submitted a CV, got an interview and did some posted some times on a track. And from that, subsequently was hired to fill the role of their racing driver, their sort of pet. Obviously, the gag behind it was that you didn't reveal who was inside. And that was part of the mystery. So it's kind of Star Wars like we had to wait um, three movies before you saw Darth Vader take the lid off. But essentially, you take away the sort of um, the comic book element. It was a very simple role, which was to extract the maximum performance out of any car at any moment, anywhere, anytime. Um, that was the essence of the Stig. Um, and it was in the real world. You know, It wasn't a, a fictitious setting because these were real cars in real places. So it was basically being a racing driver on tap for the show, which was just fantastic. So we got I got to drive hundreds of different cars, all, all, all different types, treat them very harshly um, for as long as the tires didn't melt and the brakes didn't catch fire, either setting lap times or, or, or blasting around and having fun with the boys. So it was, it was a great role. And I loved, I mean, and getting to link with the three presenters too and sharing, you know, seeing their perspective on cars too was a lot of fun. And to give people some context, Top Gear at that time was the most widely watched factual tv program on the planet 350 million people were watching each episode weren't they that's it when it grew from something very small with um, two million viewers i think it was on bbc2 um and then the way the bbc syndicates their foot is that the right word even but they distribute their footage all around the world it, it grew into this huge audience so you could be somewhere very remote and random and i think clarkson told me a story he was in somewhere in africa in the middle of nowhere 
um, and there was some, you know, nomads, you know, literally wandering around, you know, with no technology or anything um, that got agitated and um, he had a translator and he said, what, what are they wanting to, you know, what, what's going on? And he said, they want to ask you a question. And um, they said they want to they want to ask you who is the Stig, which was hilarious. <laughs> you know, there wasn't a television for hundreds of miles, but somehow they knew they knew to ask. Why did you have to keep the Stig a secret? What was the thinking behind that? It was a it was a key part of people's interest in the character, and so that's what made it fun. And for as long as we possibly could, we kept it completely secret. So when I joined, there was only two people at the show that knew who I was: my boss, who'd hired me, Andy Wilman. Um, and one of the, at the time, one of the junior guys that was working there, Jim Wiseman, who rose through the ranks to become a series producer. Um, but um, it was very, very tight knit. So not even the presenters knew who was behind the mask. And it's one of those things, it's either, it is either secret or it's not. There's no in between, there's no gray area. So, you know, I took great lengths to preserve that. Basically, I always used to, I was either fully in character or you didn't see me. Um, occasionally, I could sort of hide in plain sight and I popped up in, in different segments doing things like car football and um, did something with a mountain board and other bits and pieces. But you'd never see me with the, in the suit with the helmet off. So mm. it was either fully in character or hiding behind a balaclava or just invisible um, just to try and keep that element. And, um, and it grew into, well, it was one of the most searched questions on Google. So I think it was, um, it was just in front of, at the time, what is the meaning of life? But it was behind. Am I pregnant? And other more more pressing matters. <laughs> so it really worked it, as a, as a hook for the audience. It really worked um, up until the end when um, BBC's Radio Times did a big feature saying, you know, who is the Stig? The nation needs to know. And it was a front cover um, thing. Yeah, I had no idea this was coming out. And um, they got someone to dress up in the suit, and inside it revealed my identity, which was a bit of an own goal. I only found it was my, I had a, we had a builder in at the time and he just threw it down on the table and said, oh, can you sign that for me? And I, I started bluffing my way out of it. And so he just turned the page and I just didn't know what to say. And um, that was his view. And it was, it was also shared by all the tabloids who, who picked that story up. So it, that's when it started to become untenable. Yeah, because the, the papers started to go to extraordinary lengths. Didn't your locker room get raided at one point? I mean, raided sounds more exciting. Like, sounds like a boot through the door. They did. They, I mean, they did go in. I mean, they went through all my stuff, and I had kind of f- figured out that at some point someone might rifle through my pockets. So I always locked my wallet with, you know, names and, and uh, driving licenses and stuff like that in my car. So there was nothing in there to get. So I left no evidence at all whenever I was at work, and that worked pretty well. But it was the mundane stuff you have to kind of own up. So like uh, insurance documents. Um, things like that you had to actually put your name down and that kind of gave the game away there was um the health and safety executive did a big research piece on um, hammond's crash and i was cited as the driving consultant expert mm. which sort of pointed the finger um and didn't help so all these little things started to chip away um camera phones starting to get pictures here and there and and building up a picture and wikipedia for some reason can you know they would often reference to me so we used to try and undo that and keep putting in Damon Hill instead and, um, you know, keep a smoke screen going. So it was fun, but at the same time, you know, I love the job and you don't want to lose something that you've got that you cherish. But um, when it happened, I felt a weight lift and I thought, well, what happens next? Because you had some pretty specific rules to keep your identity a secret, didn't you? Can you talk me through those? Really? I mean, it was pretty basic. It was, I mean, as much as... That part of the role was was obvious, and um, 
you know, that was that was pretty much it. And I kind of set my own rules, really, um, based on common sense. I mean, I even got um, I had a BBC card, um, identity card made up that I, I used an amalgam of the presenter's name. So I called myself Richard Jameson. I had a dodgy photo done and they used that for checking into hotels and stuff under an alias. Um, so these are all measures I put in place to try and um, keep things going for as long as possible. So it was in my best interest because I love the job. Did your family know? Initially, no. How long? How long until your family found out you were that you were the stig? I think two years, which doesn't sound very long, but I mean, uh, it was it was it quickly got to a point where the very cl- people closest to you needed to be in on the lie. Otherwise, um, it was difficult to explain why you were away multiple weeks of the year, so-called not doing anything. Yeah. Um, so you know, I used to make up different stories depending on where I was, and I was I was fortunate in some ways. I was the sort of a bit like the Scarlet Pimpernel because. I was training to to join the army and I was racing um, and I was starting to get work in in movies too. So I had lots of um, different things to, you know, I could say I was I was working on different projects. But um, but yeah, no, it's not it's never a good idea to lie to your family. So they had to be brought in. How did people react to you to you on set? How did the producers and all the people that didn't know who you were, how did they react to you on, on set? Because you got this guy walking around in this white helmet looking like a Martian and they probably were as interested or more interested than anyone in the world in the world watching it to try and find out who you were. Yeah, I mean, it, it may be a kind of a prattish thing to say, but that was one of the my favourite parts of the whole job because it's like wearing sunglasses, except it's your whole head that you can't see. So with Sunny's on, you can still see someone's smile or you can see a facial expression. And you kind of know when someone's looking at you but with a helmet. You, people never had any idea when you were looking at them, and usually I'd be looking. So if, if, if the helmet was pointing in a different direction, but you can always peripheral vision, you can spot who spotted you um, and taken an interest. And you'd see people doing these kind of sheepish looks. And it was quite funny because you're dressed like a stormtrooper. And um, it was a, you know, it was, it was quite a strong image. So the, some of the really fun days were wandering around, um, around public and we went to Blackpool or went through London. Um, and I would say that with, um, with the Brits, largely uninterested. So, I mean, typical i mean you could go you could ride the tube naked and i don't think anyone would say anything unless you lit a cigarette didn't you didn't um, you run the 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 tube on the as a stick you did a you did a race and you had to go through it go on the tube and stuff yeah that's right so we did all that um so i got some yeah that we, there was um you know like um kids on the on the run on the school run and stuff were cheering at bus stops and all that but as for your your, your average londoner couldn't have cared less <laughs> Um, they didn't bat an eyelid. I think they, in fact, I think they made a point of not even looking as another another stupid film crew getting in the way. But we had a great time because it was it was a bit like uh, Crocodile Dundee's first day out in a big city. Mm. Um, because what does this? I thought, what does the Stig know about um, London and escalators and um, you know oyster cards? So we had a lot of fun with that, and um, so that was filming with my boss, who was who rarely um, directed, but when he did, um, was a lot of fun. So Andy Wilman. Um, our, our rye and fearless leader he he was marching around and i could see him sniggering um behind the camera and um and the, the brilliant camera teams that we had as well having a good laugh how did you eat when you're on on set i used to post it either underneath the helmet or through the visor right um in desperation but for lunch i did used to take the thing off we, we, had, we used to have a double decker bus um and um the far side of the bus faced the woods and was pretty safe we occasionally had paparazzi with the long long lens cameras but we normally saw them coming 
And so if that was the case, and I'd get the food and go back to like a little, there was a room at Dunsfold, for instance, there's always a room somewhere. You can always mm. get changed. Um, you know, I, I watched um, Superman as a kid. He used to go to the phone box and he could do it very quickly. I wasn't as fast as that. So I'd have to go and always find one of these little rooms or, but you know, it's amazing when people aren't paying attention, you can, you can get away with quite a lot. Um, so I'd either go and eat privately or go and up in this double decker bus and either lift the helmet up so I could snap it back down again pretty quickly. Um, yeah, all relax. But yeah, you had to have your wits about you. You never knew you get I caught. Bet. I bet. That'd be the worst way to go out as well. If you just spotted eating a burger or something, you used to, <laughs> you, didn't you go clubbing or something? You went, you went into a bar as the stig, didn't you? After, after a shoot. Yeah, we were in Marbella. Um, and I, uh, we were doing, so that was with, I think it was either Clarkson's DVD or we went to the Ascari track anyway. And I'm uh, getting my stories um, overlapped, but we were, we were going to do a setup shot. Basically they got a load of, um, of uh, models and it was going to be this scene sort of, you know, every racing driver's dream to be surrounded by six babes. Um, and instead, while I was waiting for the cameras to turn up, there was basically six fat truckers um, who were getting drunk at the bar who were surrounded who surrounded me and we were all chatting away and we were talking about rugby and all this sort of stuff um at which point you know it was perfect timing Clarkson walked in he said only you could come to Porto Banus and pull six fat blokes um, and be here talking about rugby <laughs> oh um, my goodness anyway so then we went upstairs and it was, all, it was all set up back into into fantasy mode and um yeah television obviously you, you talked about Jeremy for those people that don't know he's obviously talking about Jeremy Clarkson hell of a personality on him isn't he Oh, he's, he's a big personality. I mean, he's a lot of fun to be around and he, he you know, he's cantankerous for sure, but, um, but he, you know, there's, there's no one else like him and he, he can be very frustrating, but it is funny. I mean, most of the people I've worked with when we're doing, you know, training them to do the lap and everything, they're keen to learn something. And that involves listening to the, the expert who's going to tell you how to do that lap, you know, and if I go somewhere and um, I want to learn some techniques, I will usually listen to the person who knows more about it. But Jeremy is the exception to that normal rule. And, and, where, and the thing is, I learned not to take it personally. So he completely ignored all my advice whenever it came to taking a corner or, or going around Silverstone Grand Prix track, how did it, how did it go around fast? He, his own way was better. Um, and I did, I did take it personally until I watched, they went to the North Pole, I think it was the North Pole, um, and they had an SBS mountain warfare instructor. You know, it's this guy who was a hardcore military guy. And um, I, I was told that he was showing them how to use a shotgun or a rifle in, in, in extremists if they had to protect themselves from a polar bear. Whereupon Jeremy took over the lesson. And this guy, you know, had spent his entire career in the military, <laughs> you know, where everything's very orderly and people do what they're told. He didn't know what to say or do. And um, I imagine he was thinking of resorting to physical violence, but um, had to remember that he was in a TV show at this point. But if you watch that film, it's really funny because um, while they're all talking out in the North Pole, they're looking around this sort of hole they've dug in the ice, freezing water. And the instructor very carefully just walks around the back and shoves Jeremy in physically, the whole of him in the water and then proceeds to shout at him for five minutes afterwards about how to try and warm himself up by rolling in the cold snow. Um, so um, that did tickle me. So, but yeah, it, it, he's, he's entertaining. There's no doubt and, um, and controversial, but that's what makes a good TV show. You had numerous celebrities that you did teach how to drive that listened to you uh, when you're doing the celebrity laps on Top Gear. Were you in the, you were in the Stig outfit when you were doing this, weren't you? That's right. Yeah. Right. So you're in the Stig outfit and you were teaching celebs how to um, 
navigate the circuit in the quickest possible time. Simon Cowell, he, he posted a pretty good time and you you speak about him quite highly as someone that because um, you'd expect him to be a little bit like Jeremy as someone to teach. He was fascinating because he actually he posted the fastest time twice and um he, he was he was great fun to meet. Really enjoyed meeting him and, and and all the guests because everybody is different and I I treat every single person as I as I find them. And some people are cautious; they need to be encouraged. Some people are completely you know thousand yard stare and need to be reined in. So Randolph Fines um, is one of those um, the military you know guy and explorer um, absolutely had to be you know for his own safety and had to be you know brought back in the room and calmed down and everybody in between basically. So Simon. Had his had very much his own approach to driving, so he and he kept his own approach from the beginning to end. But I was able to try and direct him onto breaking points and stuff like that, and he absorbed all this information very naturally. Mm. And he was a very natural driver; it came to him um, very easily. Um, and he didn't overdrive the car, which because um, it's very easy. You learn so much, and then you push the car too hard, and and it starts going slower. But he had a really natural finesse. Um, so he set the fastest time and he reappeared, I think it was about a year later. Um, and he'd almost forgotten everything actually, because it was, uh, I guess it was so otherworldly. So we started from scratch and sure enough, by the end of half an hour, he posted the fastest time again, um, which I think he was quite pleased about. And I'm sure for him just thought that, well, of course, why wouldn't I? Um, but, uh, but not everybody has that affinity and, and some people have to work harder at it than others. Who was the worst? I wouldn't say worst. I mean, uh, like I say, you know, Jeremy was, is not a good listener, um, but, but um, everybody gave it a, a fair go. Um, and, I, and interestingly, um, pro rata, the girls did better than the boys. So we had more um, ladies set the fastest time on the, given how we had less of them um, do that segment than the guys. So Cameron Diaz was very good. Jennifer Saunders, I think, was the fastest ever that we had. Um, Ronnie O'Sullivan was very fast, but um, I, th- I would say between the two of them, they'd, they'd have a good race with each other. Um, but on the whole, the girls did very well. Cameron Diaz, you taught her how to drive. Yes, she was very fast. So she had, I knew that she'd raced in the Long Beach Grand Prix celebrity race, um, which is no mean feat because it's a street track. So like Monaco, you've got to navigate without hitting the concrete barriers. I think she won that. So she has skills. Um, and when she was on track, she, it was her and Tom Cruise and it actually rained when they were, when they were both driving at the beginning and she was the quickest. Um, then it dried up and Tom understandably wanted to, you know, go out again. And, um, he then went, he set the fastest time he'd ever had in the dry. But, um, but yeah, when it was raining, Cameron Diaz was on top. Usain Bolt, didn't you train him the day after he broke a world record? I don't know if it was the day after, but it was, it was around that time. It was very close. And um, he was wonderful. I've never met someone so laid back. And he, he was so cool and brilliant to talk to. And, and because he's a sportsman and they're all self-taught, he took in the information very, very quickly and was incredibly fast. And um, despite his size and strength, because weight is a negative um, when you're trying to post a fast lap time, he was mega. And um, I just always remember he, he made me laugh because he looked so cool and relaxed. And uh, he got out and he just said in his casual way, oh man, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. And uh, I thought, geez, if that's you when you look stressed, I'd hate to see you look relaxed. He'd, be, oh, he'd have God. to be asleep. Didn't you teach a blind man to do the lap? That's fascinating. Like how, how does that, and did he do it without any assistance in the end? 
that was for me that was the coolest thing i did on the show and yes he he did one lap that was completely joined up and so when we were first learning the track we're trying to i had to learn how to teach him where the track went which was very difficult because um you can't obviously use visual markers so we had a we created a, a new system so that he could to give him an idea we i use a, you know hands on a clock face basically nine and three as to how much steering to put in um and basically into a certain extent try to build a mental map using different words to describe where we were um distances from the corner but um i gave up on trying to teach him a lap on the first day because it was impossible we just tried to break the lap down into into segments and and corners um and i basically made a voice recording for him and visualized the lap um and i i did the voice recording in my head to the time that it would take to go around so i i i've read the instructions out corner by corner and did it with I did it with a stopwatch um, and did it to the time I believed he would achieve so that it made sense on the ground to what he was going to come and do two weeks after the training day. He memorized the recording, came back and did his first complete lap, which was just incredible. I only held the wheel through the really fast section. Um, and um, it was either his, I think it was his second lap that uh, he really was on, on song. And I, I told a white lie that I had the steering through the fast piece, but let him just ricochet through it. He drove, so he drove the entire lap himself. So he did all the gears, everything like that. Um, obviously you can't see where you're going, but your body can feel the G. So it has a sense of how fast you're going. You can feel the vibration in the car. So you know when you're doing hundred miles an hour, you can feel the, the car shake when you hit the brakes. So it's a visceral experience, but much more terrifying for him, not being able to manifest and see his position on the track at any time. So purely in trust on, on my voice. Um, and he crossed the line and he, he, um, he was sub two minutes. So he beat six people who had sights, which I thought was just fantastic. That is phenomenal. He beat six other celebrities that had sight. Yes. Yeah. It was really, really special. So um, a great guy, great guy. And uh, I, it's such an inspiring day to be involved on. You mentioned before that you got to drive some expensive cars. What was your favorite? I got lots. Um, you know, but the, the one that still stands out is the Porsche Carrera GT. You could say it's the best purely off of the sound it makes. It had a, they had a Formula One V10 engine that they, um, Porsche built this engine to go into Formula One and then abandoned that project. So they built a supercar around this incredibly light and powerful high revving engine. Um, and when it's revving on full song, I think it's, I think it's 10,000 plus RPM just takes you back to the to the 90s F1 motors and um, that incredible um, din they used to produce. And it's not the easiest car to drive. Um, in fact, at, at first I thought this is there's something wrong with this thing because it bit you so, so hard. It was so vicious um, on the limit. But um, I found that after a few laps getting used to it, everything clicked and it was like, um, you know, a, a leather glove fitting the way it fits your hand. Once you understood how to drive it correctly, um, it was incredibly rewarding and it just was the most um, precise, surgically precise car to drive. So that was my favourite. Were you there when Richard Hammond had his crash uh, in the in the rocket car? Because it's one of the most sort of scariest things that's ever happened on Top Gear, isn't it? Yeah, really, really scary. And so I'm, I thought I would be there that day and um, I've been up to look at this, the, the beast um, in the, uh, the build-up, basically, and um, so, so quite late minute, I was called away to go and work on a different film. They're so fast, the jet cars, and of course, normally on, on the drag strips, they're quite contained, and you've got those concrete walls that contain you so that if something does go wrong, 
um, you'll ricochet a little bit off the concrete, but it will generally send you down, you know, in one direction and your speed will come off. But at 300 miles an hour on an open runway, which is where um, he ended up going, um, there's nothing to arrest the speed if the right. parachute fails. And, and what happened with his thing is that as the he had a tire deflate, um, the the whole machine dipped and and yawed into the air, and that's what I think took a lot of the um, the braking force out of the parachute. So it, it was a huge crash. And, How fast um, was he going? He was doing I think 330. He went off the track and dug into the um, to the earth. So very scary. Um, he did all the right things. He deployed the parachute, and um, you had to physically um, pull a lever for that to work. So, um, you know, he, he did the best he could in the circumstances, but it was fortunate that, um, that he, he, you know, he made it through, but still it was, um, he, he was badly injured afterwards and not something you'd want to happen. Wow. Yeah. Well, how, how was he after that? Cause that's something you went and visited him in hospital, didn't you? I did. I went to, I, well, at least I saw his, 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 uh, his good wife. Um, and, uh, I sent him in a load of stuff you're not supposed to have in hospital, like cans of Coke and chocolate bars. Because nice. uh, what else do you do? But no, I mean, fortunately, he, you know, he did make a full recovery, um, and he's back doing doing things as, as crazily as ever. I mean, he's he was, he, you know, he, he's still the sort of go-to stuntman um, for um, the Grand Tour. <laughs> he always ends up doing crazy stuff, um, you know. And he was, you know, incredibly brave. He was, he was. We saw him uh, doing the 24-hour race in the Brick Car 24-hour um, back in a BMW, racing in the dark in the fog. I think within a few months of um, of that big crash. So there's no doubting his resolve, mm. and um, he's 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 a you know like all of us, he loves what he does. He's got a real taste of it. You mentioned some of the celebrities that that you um, did that did the celebrity lap. Um, Michael Schumacher also came along, didn't he? And that also yeah. links into you, you and the Stig. And um, can you sort of talk me through that situation? Yeah, it was such a, a privilege to meet him and all the other um, amazing F1 drivers we had down. Because over, over that time, we had Mark Webber, um, Lewis he Hamilton. Knew, he knew it was you, didn't he? Mark Webber. He did. Yeah, he, he recognized my gait when I was walking um, because I was trying to be coy about it. And I was, I was thinking about putting on a French accent. And I sort of muffled and said something to him. I said, look, I think you might know who I am. He said, of course, I know it's you, Ben. I can see you walking around. So, okay. <laughs> Just don't tell anyone. He said, no, you said your secret's safe. Um, so, yeah, Mark blitzed the car around. Um, yeah, I got to meet Damon Hill. Um, it's very difficult to know what to do as well because you kind of, they're, they're incredible drivers. Mark, I knew from Formula 3, but, you know, Mansell, I only knew from television you know, the producers say, look, go and show him where it goes. And you think, oh, you know, I'm going to show the Formula One driver where the track goes. I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, I, I just said, look, what do you want me to show you? And usually everybody, everybody was the same, right? Show us where the track goes and then get out. So I did that. And, um, but we had quite a laugh and, um, you know, I only wanted everyone to do as well as possible. So when, you know, someone would look up and say, how am I doing? I'd say, well, pretty good. Cause you know, we could never tell them the times. And um, I'd say, I think I noticed on the two laps ago, you were, it looked faster through this corner or that corner. You couldn't tell them the times until they were in the studio and, it got, and there was a big reveal later on as part of exactly. the show. Yeah. But I could see the times and I could see, or, or I would always look at the track from, from that one position. And I got very used to telling when a car was making faster or slower progress through a corner, you could get a rough idea. Mm. Um, plus I had sight at the time, so I can, I can marry them up. And um, short of being told to piss off by the world champions, 
um, I would lend them a bit of advice because ultimately they're all competitive and they want to want to win. Um, yeah, Jensen Button. Who else? Uh, so yeah, Lewis. And in the end, Michael Schumacher came. He was just um, fantastic to meet. Got to hang out with him in his motorhome while he was eating his um, his, his cornflakes and just ask him what he was doing. And it was just after he'd stopped racing Formula One before he went back. It was, you know, really clear. His, his passion for uh, motorsport ran so deep that um, it was no surprise he went back to F1 because I think perhaps he'd, he'd re you know, retired too soon or um, whatever. Um, but, you know, just inc an incredible an incredible driver. So we got to watch him pound around in the FXX. I, can't, I think that's what it was, but one of the prototype um, Ferraris that he owned, which was wonderful because it's always interesting to see how someone um, approaches the track differently to yourself. So he had quite a, uh, an angular lines that he would that he took, but then that car had much um, more powerful brakes and downforce than most of the supercars that I'd taken around. Then it made sense to drive more like that, more like a, an F1 car. So he was making the most of the downforce before um, angling the car in, but really fun. It was very, very sharp and aggressive driving style, which was wonderful to watch. Um, but also the yeah, a couple of bizarre moments in the sort of studio. Well, that's a polite word for what we had. We had these um, really smoked out, dingy, broken down porter cabins that were, that was the, the hub, if you like, the production hub. Um, and it was early morning. I was walking around uh, one of the, you know, part of the building with my Stig outfit on and bumped into him with the same outfit on, which was a first. Because he was um, being brought in to be a decoy because there was so much right. heat on you uh people saying that you were the stig that he was brought in to be the decoy wasn't he and you guys were going to that do a reveal it. right um and ironically it works because i think most people watched it and thought well so schumacher's the stig and it so it did to an extent it did work and you eventually did reveal yourself like how, how did that how did you get outed or how did it how did it all unravel or what was that what was the end result well, well by the end for through one means or another a, a lot more people knew who i was and what i was doing um, it was becoming harder and harder to keep unpicking Wikipedia. Um, and then finally, my identity was revealed in the Radio Times. And after that, it ran in the tabloids. And it was really a matter of time. And I could then start to hear these the mutterings on, you know, in, in meetings and stuff around the BBC world that, um, you know, my days were numbered, basically. Um, and I just felt either I go on my own steam or I'm going to get shown the door. Um, so... I decided it was time to, to do something different. And, um, you know, I handed my notice in to my boss. Um, I'd written, a, you know, a, a summary of my my time, which had been a fantastic, you know, era to work on the show. So I had a, an autobiography I wanted to, to release. Um, and at the end of my series, my last guest, or if you like, sorry, the last um, celebs we had on were, was Tom Cruise and, and Cameron Diaz. So that was um, that was my last show. Nice way to uh, go out. And then, yeah, and then I left and um, it... Um, yeah, I bet that was in end of 2010. So took a big step into the unknown, and um, but it was and it was it was quite something because from being completely under wraps and never talking about what I did, um, it was really incredible stepping into a world where people wanted to know what it was like and to talk about it. And um, and actually, it was it was extremely uncomfortable to start with, um, and then um, just just enjoyed it because so many people have enjoyed the show for so many years. And realised how fortunate I was to have been that character for, for eight years. One last question on the stag before we move on. You got pulled over by a police officer, didn't you? 
Yes, a few times. I mean, we used to we shot all over the world, but in a lot in Europe. I mean, we got arrested at Edwards. Not arrested. We got stopped though at Edwards Air Force Base. We were filming out where the UFOs allegedly landed um, on the dry lake, uh, and it was amazing. The um, the security services were there from the Air Force, like just like that, with um, you know machine guns, the whole thing. Um, so we got shut down there by them. But also um, on the way up to Scotland, I was driving a Caterham. And the roof flew off. Um, it was flapping around a bit, but it just literally just took off, which they don't normally do. So I don't want to um, malign Caterham. They, they make great cars. Um, in fact, just to make it clear, it was 100% our fault for not fixing it down properly. It was typical um, top gear shambolic. Um, the police picked it up. And then, you know, as they do, they, they tanked it up the, the highway with the blue lights and found the owner, pulled me over. Um, and I think they must have said to each other, right, well, we'll, we'll get him to say who he is. And um, I could see them smirking. So that when they said, you know, who, what's your name? I just said the Stig. And that was it. Wouldn't be drawn into it, which they found quite funny. So we had a, a nice debate. We talked about the roof and they let me go. Um, and then actually, so that one was not staged. And then further up on the, I think either because they heard about that or whatever, but we staged one um, closer to Knock Hill. So I had the, the goal was to get up to the, track at Knock Hill and then um, test drive what the guys were building. You've been in some pretty cool movies as well, haven't you, as a stunt driver? What was your what was your role in the Bond movie? So, yeah, so I've worked on four Bond films now, um, So which is just great. So you, working with a, an amazing team and the movie stuff is such a bigger scale than TV. So TV was, was really a fantastic um, learning process just you know how the cameras work positions and, and whatnot and how they edit the footage together and then you go to movies and the scale is huge they've got mm. much bigger budgets they've got much bigger crews um and they are more willing to sp- spend much more time to try and get that perfect shot so um i was in there as a as a driver um so it became part of the stunt team basically and it was my second film so the first one i worked on was national treasure 2 um and then in, in quantum of solace which was my first bond um, ended up um, doubling for Bond, doing some of the driving in the Aston Martin. You were James Bond. Yeah, well, there's only one Bond at the moment. Well, there'll be there will be another one at some point in the future. Own it, being own it. I, I wish in my in my dreams, but um, but you know, working with Daniel and um, seeing the stuff he does, it was really incredible. And so uh, we got had a great time doing some training with him because he does a you know he, he heavily involved with the stunt team for the fight scenes and uh, and for the driving stuff. But for those those bits that were either too dangerous or too long winded, um, that's where we all just took those pieces on for for the uh, obviously on the stunt team, and yeah. So we Lake Garda was a big section there. I think the whole whole time I spent on that was about four months on that film, and we were mostly in in Garda and Carrara, in Italy, getting that mad chase put together with um with the truck driving up the hill, big crashes, lots of head ons. Um, so there were lots of those kind of um, real head-on moments where there was very little outs because we had a cliff face on one side and a cliff drop on the other. It wasn't CGI at all. You were like, right, actually, we could go over the cliff here. That's the lovely thing with the Bond movies. They don't use CGI, so it's always real. There's always somebody on the end, on the end of a cable flying through the air if they're doing that or um, or, or in the car scenes. Um, and so most of the... Well, whenever I've worked on a film, it's it's not involved CG, so they're they're doing it real. And the car chases, you can really, I think CGI looks super cheesy. You can tell the physics is off. And you've worked with in the Batman movies as well. Please tell me you drove the Batmobile. 
I drove the Batmobile. Oh my goodness. Only on one of them. Yes, the, the Dark Knight was the first one, wasn't it? No, Batman Begins is where it, is where it began. And a buddy of mine, George Cottle, did the did the, all the driving scenes on that. And they um, with, worked with Andy Smith and the and the um, special effects team. They completely built from scratch this vehicle. And a lot of these really outlandish movie cars, you know, they fall apart as soon as you look at them. And um, the, the, this one was absolutely different. So even though it had this crazy design where the wheels were in, in, inboard of the suspension and on, on arms basically, and had these huge, big fat tires at the rear. So it was a bizarre design um, that was Chris Nolan's vision, uh, fantastic director. So he, he kind of gave a visual of what he wanted. And then those guys came together to, to manufacture this thing. So the Batmobile had done two films by that point. And they really had it um, singing. So it was, it was a fantastic bit of kit. So they made some more for the final of the trilogy. I got to drive the one with the, with the rockets that were firing out the roof. So there's one of them that had the missile launcher. That was me. There was one that had a, a cannon swiveling and, uh, and there was another one which was clean. And, and we just had at it in these things. And um, I, wish we, I wish we had done a lot more in them. Um, they were built to do jumps. You could, you could drift them. You could do all kinds of things. Um, but at the end of the day, the story came first, damn it. And um, we got to we got to do a few bits and pieces. I got to shoot at Batman with my missiles and um, just absolutely amazing film to work on. And that was my first experience filming in the US. Um, and, and since then, I've worked there um, pretty much continuously. When you're, when you're in the movie like Batman, if you were or Bond, how in character do you have to be? Do you get seen on the movie at all? Or are you kind of out of somehow taken out of the picture yeah you're you're not in character so you're not wearing the you're not wearing batman suit <laughs> visions of my underpants um no although um in in uh, a lot of the films um when you're not driving or doing doing something like that you need to find something else useful to do um they'll throw you in as an extra or or you know so you you might end up popping up on the screen doing something else ah. so on dark Knight rises i ended up being one of the henchmen so i normally had that costume on ready to jump out if they needed another, you know, someone else to, to throw into a scene. So That's I think on the, cool. on the Batman film, I was loading a nuclear bomb. It was a brief, a brief glimpse um, doing that and uh, marching around with Bane because I was one of Bane's um, henchmen or mercenaries <laughs> or whatever. Um, <laughs> oh, so it's a lot awesome. of fun. Yeah, it's, 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 it's brilliant because you see so much more. And, and of course, you, you want to just do as much as you can in these films. Yeah, you want to get involved in that. You do. And, and the perspectives and all that are, are fantastic. I mean, the cool thing with Batman was they had these this massive riot where they had an army of police and an army of um, mad people that were Bane's crew kind of running in. And I think it was about 300 extras that we trained up. I say we, I mean, the stunt team and um, we had Buster Reeves who's doing the fight choreography for that. Um, and all the stunt guys, they're all um, excellent sort of their fight, fighting skills is one of their main um, core things. So I got to learn a little bit about that as well. But they trained these guys from absolutely nothing. Um, within a few weeks, they had them with these basic moves. But once in character, this fake phony war actually became quite brutal. And you, but that's just, it's, it's typical blokes. As soon as you get um, 150 on each side running in, it's like British Bulldog and, um, you know, the occasional fist was flying. Yeah, everyone's so, going to anyway, have a crack. Looking on camera and everybody enjoyed themselves. So, um, and I was, I was usually in the safety of the Batmobile until I did get dragged out by the team and, and shown what it felt like. But, um, but it looked like a lot of fun. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's a really interesting story that you talk about with, um, you did some driving for Nicolas Cage in London, didn't you? Yeah. And, and you're sitting, you're not actually in the car. Is that right? That's it. So the, the pod car is basically that where the actor is inside the car, but has no control over where it's going or what speed, um, except for banging on the roof to tell you to, um, you know, stop, stop scaring me, um, which they don't do. But yeah, we obviously we rehearse that so that they could, everybody gets a feel for what's going on. And, and it's actually quite cool because once you know the route the car is going to take, you can, the, the actors can start to, um, Play with the steering wheel and so on to, to so they can get their scene done with the stunt driver on the roof um and it, it's very good for inserting um the actors and the cameras into um, a piece of highly choreographed action without um having to expose them to any you know any of the risk um or, or the time it would take to to do all the training and all the rehearsals that we do um to get the timings and everything um, perfect so in the right place at the right time you rehearse on a racetrack don't you don't, don't you put a fake almost like a because you were the 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 movie. What was the movie called? So that was the first. That was National Treasure Two. Right, and and so that was that was shot in the middle of uh, the London city, wasn't it? Around Bank Literally, and around yeah, yeah. outside Bank of England. So um, all the you know pedestrians, everything were replaced with um, stunt people dressed up in the pinstripe suits and all those things. Um, but we rehearsed that scene on on a, on a completely blank canvas on an airfield. So measured the streets. All the obstacles noted were things that were immovable, like traffic cameras and um, you know lamp posts and stuff like that. Walls, fences, those are all marked out with cones and tape, so that you know what you're working with effectively. And then you can you know choreograph all those pieces, practice where the pedestrians are going to be, people who are going to jump out of the way and look shocked and surprised. Um, so you do a couple of rehearsals, get a feel for it, and then you know whoosh bang, out go the cameras and and do it for real with TV and the films. Working with the police, uh, and particularly in London, it's it makes it so much easier because um, the, there's a great rapport. Everybody has got the same goal, which is you know do it safely. Um, for uh, Fast and Furious Six, we filmed in Piccadilly, Piccadilly, Piccadilly Circus, even, and brilliantly mapped out on um, the airfields so that we could rehearse sliding these two cars very very close together. So on that one, I was doubling Dom Vin Diesel's character. You were you were Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious. Vin, Vin Diesel, yeah, Vin Diesel. Um, so I had a ball cap on for that. Um, and um, we basically, the two of us were sliding these things around incredibly close. And so the rehearsal for that was, was really important because we were filming between um, midnight and about three in the morning. And as much as we had sort of control of the streets and everything, there were still a lot of people milling around from nightclubs. Um, so, you know, it was important that you you didn't do anything really stupid like um, spinning it off and or you know um, in, into the wrong direction but it worked really well um, and for me it was one of the coolest things we got to do because it's 
such an iconic um, piece of London. Um, and, uh, you know, you walk it every day and I still, whenever I go back through London, I still, when I see Piccadilly Circus, just always smile and think, yep, I slid around that at 80 miles an hour and didn't hit anything. Um, so um, it was an amazing experience. And, it, and yeah, it looked really, and, you know, the beautiful thing is you, you get to see your, your work on, on the big screen. So from the big screen and then switching back a little bit uh, to real life uh, dangerous situations, you, you were involved in the SAS, weren't you? Or special forces? I did a lot of training with the army um, over the years. And um, so as an instructor, I've taught all, all different um, um, levels of security services and police and things like that. So that's been really cool. So I've done a, a mix really of high speed driving and the evasive driving, which is very, very similar to the, some of the stunt moves we'll see. Because when you were when you were in the doing that, you were also still trying to be a, or I say trying to be, it's probably playing it down a little bit. You were still trying to push to become a professional driver, and it was it was pretty hard work, wasn't it? Like you were on the phones, you were ringing round. Is that kind of how it worked for you? Yeah, the, I mean, racing was my first passion, and it's um, it, it's been the sort of core of my the last twenty years. Less so now because I moved more into filming, but um, but I love the competition and it's uh, the purity of it really because you you either cross the line first or you need to do better. Um, so there's a, a lesson there. Um, racing at the Le Mans twenty four hours was the real peak for me. That was the the fastest level of racing I I competed in. That and and the NASCAR. It was um, you know. Absolutely, the, the the competition side of it in the sport, I absolutely loved it. Um, the hard part is that it it's a very expensive sport, and so inevitably you're you're going to be at the mercy of um, of forces that are not you know not in your control. And so you know, I was very fortunate that the teams that hired me did. Um, but you're always on this sort of it's always musical chairs, and um, when the music stops and if the chairs have run out, that's you done. Um, and it, it can be like that from season to season. So it's um, pretty brutal, but, isn't it? It's tough. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. But I mean, I'm not going to whinge because it was an amazing time for me. I've absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, I look back on that time and I would never have done any different except, um, you know, well, what, what can you do? I, I put everything into into um, getting those drives and do the best I could. And you never know. I, there's, there's a good chance. I was, I'm not past it yet. So I'm going to try and get back in a race car in the next season. Is uh, if one still on the cards, still, still on the dream in the pipeline? I strongly doubt it, but I am always ready for the call-up. Um, yeah, you never know. Bloody hell. How close did you get? Um, I guess the closest I got to Formula One, I had a, an interview up at Arrows um, um, back in the 90s when I was doing single-seat racing. And um, I guess that was that was something. Um, you know. But the, in terms of actual competition, the Le Mans racing was really as close as it gets mm. because that... Well, we had a, a Formula One engine power in the car, 850 horsepower. Um, it had more downforce than the F1 cars of the day. Um, and we were racing at 225 miles an hour um, with carbon brakes and all those other, um, you know, great gadgets. Um, so that was, for me, the best two years of racing. And that was the, was racing for Ascari in their, what they called LMP1, the prototype. And um, just an, it was it was mind-bogglingly fast. And I love that. How fit did you have to be for that 24-hour Le Mans race? I thought I was quite fit when I was racing in Formula 3 um, because I did some running and occasionally threw a few weights around um, until I got into the Le Mans car. And then I realised that um, this required a new level. And I think the, the step to Formula 1 is very similar. The constant G-force um, is totally debilitating <laughs> unless you're 
body is ready for it. I mean, right. in, in, a, in the rugby context, it's quite a, in a similar, completely different, but similar way. Like the match fit is such a different level of fitness to um, what you can, you know, obviously there's the training, but you develop, you know, you get your core fitness and then you get the match fitness and, and somehow rugby players can take those impacts and shrug them off and carry on. Whereas most people will be a broken wreck on the, you know, on the floor with the racing, it's very similar and it's conditioning your muscles to, to function in that environment. Um, the continuous um, dehydration, you know, you, and you need that blood oxygen going to your head every millisecond of the way. Otherwise if you lose focus, that's it. You know, yeah. so much crashing, you're going to be slower. Um, you need to be, you know, you've got to have the strength to work that wheel. Um, F1 has got, I, I think I'm right in saying they're all power steering now. And um, so that is something that's um, considerably light the load for the drivers, but the G-forces are massive. Um, and in the Le Mans car I was driving, there was no power steering. It was unbelievably heavy to turn the wheel, um, particularly with all that downforce. And you had all the Gs, you had, um, you know, mega high speeds followed by huge deceleration on the brake pedal. Um, and I can remember we used to have to push the brake pedal so hard that after about six, seven laps, you, you lost the feeling in your foot and all you could feel was the bone hitting the metal of the pedal. Um, and that's, um, that, was, that was it. So you do um, three stints normally. So a, a stint is as long as the car will lap before you need fuel. So about one hour um, and you stop, get some fuel, a bit of, bit of hot, fresh air and um, a fresh water bottle if you've been a good boy. And then you go again. So um, Again, I, I love the challenge. It was uh, I was doing sort of up to you know three hours plus a day of of training in different guises to be strong enough to do it, and it was a it was a it was a wonderful challenge. You had a pretty gnarly accident there, though, didn't you? But uh, subsequently in GT, yes, it, it was bloody painful. Um, I can remember that much. But it was very strange. And that is racing. It's hero to zero. I crossed the checkered flag. Took the at the end of a qualifying session in Romania um, at a street track, very very bumpy and aggressive track. Um, and um, it was a very full grid. There was, I think, there's about 40 cars um, competing on you know that for that space. So qualified first, brilliant. Got a good night, you know, good feeling on the radio with the with the team and everything like that. So bring it in basically, and um, got through the first corner and was was whistling along one of the one of the straights to come back to the pits and um, spotted a car that had crashed into the wall. And there was a yellow flag, so I saw it, but the guy behind me didn't didn't notice it. And so as I gently backed off he swung across and um spun my car around and as i was kind of pirouetting i thought well i reckon i'll bounce off that lamborghini and uh, i'll just do a pinball and, and keep going and unfortunately um just as my car came came around it landed square on the back of the gearbox of the the lambo and and effectively sort of went from 130 down to about sort of 40 miles an hour in a very short space of time um, so it was enough to, to push my body out through the side of the car. Um, and, uh, and that, um, you know, which, which is hard to believe because you're strapped in so tightly, you, you can't even move half an inch. Um, and then my body, I think twisted about a foot and enough to sort of knock the door open. Yeah, it was extremely painful. So you're, you're winded, can't really move. Um, and then you get all that, um, that festering heat, um, build up in the car because the, all the air is stopped flowing. So you just desperately want to get out. Um, and um, thanks to the amazing marshals, um, they got me out. But I can't remember that bit because I, I think <laughs> I think I passed out when they when they got me out. I remember looking across the car and seeing we had a in that we had a very tall um, gear stick. And um, my left side was trapped against this other car. So I knew they'd get me out that way. And I saw the sort of stretcher thing. 
and I thought this is not going to be pleasant. And um, but they they got me out, and um, thanks to them, you know, off I went. Oh, wow, that's intense. I'll finish things off now. I just want um, let's see if I can throw three questions for you. Uh, three bits of driving advice. The first the first question that I want to ask you is, what is the biggest mistake that amateur drivers make on the road? That's an easy one. Um, it's not looking far enough ahead. So um, we're very near focused and um, staring at laptops and computers and things like that. Um, and it, it extends onto the road as well. So um, whether it's looking down at the stereo or, or what's just in front of us, but the further ahead you can look, um, you can anticipate the traffic flow. And um, and so the one thing to practice is not using the brake pedal. So um, it's quite a fun one. So if you've got enough space in front and you can read what the traffic's doing, you should be able to do it all on the power just by lifting off and avoid the brakes. So I always try and remind um, taxi drivers of this wonderful um, technique so that you don't get the stop and go all the time. Years ago, I was a truck driver and my driving instructor got me to drive through the middle of the city without stopping. Yeah, so, there you go. In the same gear. So you had to you had to constantly be looking at lights and cars and it was such yeah. a good method. What advice would you give someone driving in the rain? See that that's an interesting one because you you know you you I would say look ahead again but sometimes you you lose visibility. So um but equally with that that's also um a factor of speed. So if you can't see it's better to slow down. Um so we're talking about road driving it's just remembering the fact that the the surface has less grip so you've got to extend your braking distances which means that you need to look even further ahead um so you just double down on on point one basically which is i suppose is, is a slightly boring answer what's the best tip you'd give to an everyday driver i i i it, it literally I, I can't um stress enough the first point that's it it's that and being smooth. And I think the two are linked really, because if you're reacting to things all the time, you'll never be smooth. So if you're a rough driver, it's because you're not paying attention to point one. Um, and that's with the steering, you see people who are nervous because they're, they're reacting to things around them, but you know, that's what your peripheral vision is for. Um, and then, you know, long distance vision is what gives you that uh, ability just to process information much earlier. Now, I did say three, but I've just got one more thing around a, a myth that, you get taught when you first start driving about holding the steering wheel. Do you want to talk me through that? Well, this is one of the fun debates I have with, with uh, our brothers in the police. Um, there are various techniques for holding the steering wheel. Yes, because my dad was in the police and he was, This it's funny you say that because my dad taught me how to, how to drive and obviously the steering wheel piece is up for much debate as well. So the shuffle steering, where you pass the steering around, the Scandinavians call that milking milking the cow as you pass the wheel. Gotcha. Uh, it's become a kind of, um, it, it was instilled in the police in, in the UK about 100 years ago when the steering wheel was wider than the screen uh, and it had no power steering. And you, and you basically turned the wheel like you were steering a boat. These days, the steering wheels are much smaller and with power steering, you can turn rotationally and you just pass the wheel around. And that's what we use on racetracks and it's completely effective. And it's actually cited in the police manual for using in um, challenging driving conditions. So I would argue it's the best way to drive, period. And that's how I, that's how I hold the wheel. But um, there are other ways. And, um, you know, I've, we've had some very heated debates over the years about which way works. And I've, I've heard both sides of the argument from, from the top police instructors from Hendon. Um, and we still remain friends, just. And Ben, you've got a new book out, don't you? I do. Um, this is it. 
Aston Martin. Um, yeah, it's uh, been really good fun actually to research it. So lockdown one um, coincided with my research piece for that book, which was which was good and bad because um, it meant I couldn't go to as many places as I wanted to. But fortunately, I've been to the Aston Martin Heritage Trust and sort of grabbed a whole pile of information sort of going back through the years. And effectively, I was able to link together all these all these different amazing stories, these biographies of people who've um, contributed to the, to the company going back to the early 1900s and sort of and trace the whole lineage um, all the way through from the early years when they first went Grand Prix racing in 1923 um, through the Sterling Moss era when they when they um, finally won Le Mans 24 hours outright in uh, 1959 um, all the way through to modern day so through the James Bond movies the whole thing it's a it's a story of the of the company Aston Martin but really it's told through the eyes of the the people um, so in a way it's like a series of biographies so yes so it's a lot of fun and um, hopefully people will enjoy it. Bean Collins thank you so much for coming on the show mate thanks for having me and you have you, well, next time you have to tell me what your dad told you he, he told me to shuffle he was a policeman so he told me to do the the scandinavian well, he's, a, he's a dairy farmer now as well so he told me to milk the cow yeah. well don't send him this video otherwise i'll expect a poison pen letter but um <laughs> but it's been great speaking to you and um thanks for having me appreciate it thanks for listening to this episode of the andy rose show if you enjoyed the episode the best thing you can do as a thank you is give it a share on social media or with your mates and spread the word. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.